how do you feel about multitasking today? Think you can do a little of that? All right. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. And as you're turning there, I want you to listen because I've got a couple jokes for you today. Okay. Okay. So a kindergarten teacher gave a homework assignment to her little class pupils. The instructions were go home and tomorrow bring back to school um, an object that represents your religion. And we're going to do that in show and tell tomorrow. So all the kids went home and did that. And the first kid got up in front of the class and said, hi, my name is Benjamin and I'm Jewish. And this is a star of David. Second little girl got up and said, hi, my name is Mary. I'm a Catholic and these are my rosary beads. Third little kid got up and said, hi, my name's Tommy. I'm a Baptist and this is a casserole dish. Okay. Since the response was overwhelming, I'll give you another one. There's a guy who thought that his wife might be going deaf. Okay. And so he called the doctor, the audiologist and said, you know, doc, I, I'm just afraid that she's not hearing as well as she used to. And so the doctor said, well, you know, before you go in and spend thousands of dollars on hearing aids, let me give you a little simple test that maybe you can kind of run unbeknownst to her. Doctor said, here's what you do. Next time you're in the house, just stand about 40 feet behind her and say something in a very normal tone and then go to about 30 feet and 20 feet and 10 feet and 5 feet and then you can get back to me and we'll see how she's doing. So the next day, his wife's in the kitchen making uh, supper and he's in the den and he thinks, oh, I need to do that. So he says, honey, what's for dinner? No answer. So he moves to 30 feet. Honey, what's for dinner? No answer. Another 10 feet. Honey, what's for dinner? No answer. So he gets five feet behind her and says, honey, what's for dinner? Finally, honey, what's for dinner? And she says, Ralph, for the fifth time, chicken casserole. So what's that got to do with Revelation 14? Here's what it has to do with that. Believe it or not, there was a point to that, okay? As God had the Apostle John write the Revelation, you might remember that every time there was a really serious, intense portion or, or chapter, it was almost always followed by something that would be a lot more... Now, John didn't tell any jokes like that in the Revelation. I understand that. But there's a principle there. Last week, chapter 13, was that a heavy-duty chapter or what? I mean, we see the dragon standing on the shore. We see the first beast and then the second beast. And the chapter ends with the mark of the beast upon those who worship the dragon. I mean, that's heavy duty. Okay. So while chapter 14 is not, so John throws a couple little jokes in there. Chapter 14 is one of those pauses, one of those, okay, you've been looking at what's going on in the world and it's nasty. It's bad. It's scary. It's terrifying. Let's pull back for a minute. (sighs) Take a deep breath. And chapter 14 is one of those pauses where instead of looking at all the nasty on earth, 
we get another glimpse up into heaven. Reminding us that even though it may be bad, God's still in control. God's still in charge. Okay, so no jokes in chapter 14, but that same principle applies just for uh, frame of reference sake. In in case you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, we are at the portion in the book of the Revelation where we're in what's called an interlude section. We're between the sounding of the seven trumpets in chapter 11 and the outpouring of the seven bowls of judgment that are going to happen in chapter 16 when we get there in this section We've been in the last few weeks, a couple of things stand out. Chapter 12 that we did two weeks ago was an overview, kind of a historical panorama review of the spiritual battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Then last week we looked at chapter 13 that had kind of a twofold mission to it. First part of the chapter was about the devil using government or the state to persecute the saints and to deceive the ungodly. And then the second part was the, the government or the state authorizing its sanctioned religion and its economic allies to persecute the saints and deceive the ungodly. And it's a tough chapter. I mean, it's like, oh my goodness, look how bad things are. Well, chapter 14 is a bit of a a reprieve from that, okay? Chapter 14 is what's known as a proleptic chapter. Proleptic. That means that it talks about future events as if they were happening right now. And it's not to confuse us as much as it is to give us a certainty, All right, this hasn't happened yet, but I'm talking like it's happening right now because it's gonna happen. And so remember, as we've looked at chapter 13 and how awful it is, chapter 14 is equally true, right? The the good things in chapter 14 absolutely will happen. This chapter portrays the destiny of God's people who are martyred. Now that's, again, oh no. But folks... Is martyred in the end of the world? No. It's a dot. Okay? Your life is a dot on this infinite line that goes on forever. We're talking eternity here, folks. So even though martyrdom is a little bit frightening at times and, oh, no, in the big picture, it's not the issue. And so we're talking about people here who have fallen prey physically to the wrath of the beast, but not spiritually. They don't deny their faith. And you'll see in this chapter, there's a very special place in the heart of God for those who will be martyred during this uh, time of what's called the Great Tribulation. So, if you would stand, please. I've asked Stephanie Hilberry if she would come and uh, read chapter 14 for us. So, as she's coming, let me remind you, we stand every week as a way to honor the Word of God and to make a statement that says, you know what? We believe this book. We believe the good preferred future that God has for his children. Amen? Amen. Okay, so there you are. Stephanie, thank you for helping us. I'm not sure I can hold both. Revelation 14. And I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice that I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. 
They are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. And I saw another angel flying in mid heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. And another angel, a second one followed saying fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he will also, or he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. And I looked and behold, a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap because the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out of the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth, and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Thank you, Stephanie. Okay, you can have a seat. Once again, the purpose of chapter 14 is to be an encouragement. And it happens through a series of many visions that John has up into what's going on in heaven. There are more angels in this little chapter. I mean, you can't hardly look without bumping into an angel somewhere. And we'll talk a little bit about just not so much who they are, but what they've been assigned to do. Okay, so let's, let's work our way through the chapter. Back to verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. If you were here last week, can you see the sharp contrast between chapter 13 and chapter 14? I mean, chapter 13 starts with a dragon standing on the seashore. And um, he's got all of his followers around him. And they were marked also. They were marked with the number 666. Not necessarily a literal number, but that's the number of man. And I think it stands for the fact that man's unable, it is a futile attempt to control this world and dominate this planet. Try as he might, he will not succeed. Because this planet belongs ultimately to the king of kings 
and the Lord of Lords. Jesus himself. And so we have this sharp contrast, though. The the dragon, his followers, and their mark. And now we see the lamb. Who's the lamb? Jesus. Jesus is standing on Mount Zion. Now, if that's literal, then he's standing in Jerusalem after his glorious second coming. He is about to establish his permanent reign upon the earth. No reason to believe it's not literal. If it's figurative, then Mount Zion throughout scripture represents the true city of God, the true people of God. And mountains throughout scripture are symbolic of power and authority and and rule. So either it's literal or it's figurative, but either way, There's a vast difference between who is standing on the seashore and who's going to be standing on that mountain and who ultimately will rule this planet. You know, I get up early in the morning on Sundays and I was up early this morning and I, as I read through this again, I thought of uh, that old hymn that we used to sing on Christ, the solid rock. I stand all other ground is sinking sand. And it made me think of, of the dragon, the devil. He's here trying to stir up this one final rebellion. What's he standing on? Sinking sand. His cause is futile in the long run. But there's going to be a lot of collateral damage before we get to the end. The lamb and his followers are marked as well. His name and the name of his father, by the way, our father also, will be written on their foreheads. The bark of the beast, we said the, the word in the Greek is like the branding of a cattle. And I think it shows just how little the devil actually cares for those who follow him. He will brand them like a cattle. Whereas these are marked by God as An ultimate, dear, wonderful possession of his. A very, 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 very different kind of thing. Who are these 144,000? Well, I want to tell you, they're not the Jehovah's Witness. Okay? The Jehovah's Witness used to believe that when their numbers hit 144,000, the end would come because they were the fulfillment of this scripture. Well, they're up over 144,000 now. But this isn't them. There are some who I've talked to you before about um, replacement theologians, people that believe that the promises made to Israel are no longer Israel's, but because they disobeyed, those promises are now to the church and Israel isn't a part of God's covenant promise anymore. Those who believe that normally believe that this is a symbolic number. It's not a literal number and it represents the church Christians who will be martyred, although not ultimately defeated, during this great tribulation. Now, I can see how somebody could hold that position, especially, not the replacement part, but thinking this applies to the church, especially in light of a scripture in Hebrews chapter 12 that uses very similar language when it's talking about the new Jerusalem and the the place that the saints of God are going to have in the end times. It it, it seems to indicate something God is doing um, among his church. Let me read this for you. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to the myriad of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, I think there's a a sense in which, okay, maybe that's talking about 
New Testament believers. But remember, I told you before, I don't think this is an either or. I don't think, does God have a plan for Christians in the church or does he have a plan for the Jews? He's got a plan for both. And an everlasting covenant, I don't understand how you can make an everlasting covenant non-everlasting. So even though the Jews have goofed and blown it and sinned and rejected it, God still has a plan for them. Okay, And so I think there is a sense in which when Jesus comes again, there's a glorious thing he's going to do in his church. But I think there's a glorious thing he's going to do among the Jews as well. So when I go back again, let's put verse one back up. That language, Mount Zion and 144,000, I am not a replacement theology subscriber, okay? I believe this speaks of a special group of Jewish believers in the Messiah that will be martyred in this great tribulation. I don't know if it's 144,000. I don't know if that's a literal number. I don't think that really is the issue. I don't think it really matters. But that 144,000 was used back in chapter 7. And for my liking, I think it clearly points to something special God is doing with his chosen people. A special purpose and plan he has for Israel. Okay, so let's keep going. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on the harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been purchased from the earth. This voice comes from the presence of God. I don't think it's God's voice speaking. There's something interesting. Have you ever seen cartoons or depictions of heaven and what's going to be going on in heaven? And the picture is always of angels sitting on white clouds playing harps. That's where they get this from, okay? Aren't you glad that's not the only picture of heaven that we have? I will gladly let you be the harpist. There's a lot of other things I want to do in heaven. Not that I wouldn't play a harp, but folks, heaven is not going to be boring. It's not going to be sitting around harp fest. 2014 is not going to be what heaven looks like, okay? There's going to be so many other wonderful, glorious things that go on. But that's where they get this concept, this idea of playing harps in heaven. That's where it comes from. Um, They sing a new song. It's not a better song than the other multitude of songs we read in the Revelation or elsewhere in Scripture. It's just unique. It's new and it's unique to them and it is reserved for them. Nobody else can sing this because of what they'd endured, what they've gone through as martyrs doing during this time. doesn't make them better, but that's how life works, isn't it? Sometimes there are very specific things that happen to very specific people because of their very specific circumstance. This is like that. And then John uses a real unusual description of these 144,000. These are the ones who've not defiled themselves with women for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now this could literally be 144,000, but, but the number's not important. These, these were virgins. It says they were celibate, but I want to be very, very clear on something before we go any further. Okay. This is not for one minute saying that sex is bad Sex is wrong or sex is a second class thing. Now, gentlemen, I have to tell you, I'm very disappointed in you right now because you had great opportunity to say amen. <laughs> and you, you just, you let that one, you let that one hang. I'm going to say that again. This scripture does not say that sex is bad amen. or wrong amen. or somehow second class. Amen. 
It's not, okay? Sex was God's idea to begin with. And you know how some ideas are better than others? This was a really good idea, all right? But that's, the scripture is not saying that the thing that makes these people special is that they were virgins or that they were chaste or that they were, they were celibate. Now, they very well might have been. But here's the reason for that, okay? It has to do with what the Apostle Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, it's not a PowerPoint slide, but I want to read this for you. And I want you to, to see how I think this applies to the principle in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul writes these words. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who's married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. It does not say for one moment it's a bad thing to care for the concerns of your wife. It just says if you've got a wife or you've got a husband, you can't quite have that same focus. You need to take care of your spouse. But it... it, it divides your, your focus and, and your ability to concentrate on pleasing the Lord as if that were the only thing you lived for. The woman who's unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who's married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Again, not a bad thing, but the point is, if you want to have undistracted, specific, special focus on your mission and your purpose, it's easier to do as a single person. That's not a good or bad statement at all. Okay? And, and these, and it says they follow the lamb wherever he goes, even unto death. So this, this special group of martyrs are, are, are chaste, are celibate, because it allows them in these end times on this very, very specific and special mission, although we don't quite understand what it is, to just hone in on God and what he wants for them like few others can. That's, I think, the issue. Um, the reference also to their purity, their being virgins, their being chaste, also probably has some allusion to... Remember how in the Old Testament when, when Israel would go into idolatry, they were always compared to a harlot, to a whore? I think it's, it's that kind of thing. These people are not fallen to pr- falling prey to everything else everybody in the world all around them was. The mark of the beast, worship the beast, etc., etc., etc. No, they were laser-beamed in on... We will serve God. We will worship him. We'll have no part of what's going on in the world around us. It says in verse number five, these have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. First fruits talks about a special order of reward. These, for some reason, because of what they will endure, have a choice and prime place in the heart of God. God loves all his children. But these are on a special assignment that will, in some way, shape, or form, provide for them a unique and special reward for what they're going to undergo and what they're going to endure. I wonder, too, at times, if they might not have a special place in the resurrection of the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about the resurrection, and it talks about a specific order in which things are going to happen. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians verses 20 and 23, it says this, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ's, 
at his coming. That may seem to indicate that when Jesus comes again, the first to be resurrected will be these who have been martyred. Because they have a special place in the heart of God. They were willing to lay down their life for the sake of the gospel and the work of the kingdom. There's no lie found in them. They're blameless. Again, a reiteration of how faithful they are and how pure they are. I was thinking again early this morning as I was going over my notes and and reading what it it said there about no lie was found in their mouth and that they were blameless. I I thought to myself, now, where does it say that? I know I've I've read that and my mind was drawn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And and in 1 Peter 2, it talks about um, the example that Jesus gave to us and how we were to follow in his steps and do what he did, walk like he walked. Listen to what it says there, 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through uh, 23. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. This is speaking of Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. There's those words. No lie found in his mouth. No deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And I thought to myself, as, as people would read that portion of the book of the Revelation, I wonder if it dawned on them that even if I'm called to martyrdom, I'm in a Take it like Jesus took it. I'm not going to fight flesh and flesh. I'm not going to try and fight fire with fire. And ultimately, even if it costs me my life to be a Christian, I am going to entrust myself to the one who deals faithfully. Folks, I'm not in anywhere in this series. Am I going to predict when I think the end is or will we be here and will some of you be martyred? I don't know. But I do believe this. I think I'm on safe ground here. I think the world's getting nastier and nastier. And life is probably going to get tougher and tougher. So whether we're martyred or not martyred, the point that John wants to drive home at this point, and that I do too, is no matter what life brings your way, continue to trust yourself to the one who deals faithfully. Because ultimately, God will see you through. What if it cost me my life? Dot line. Okay? It's not the end of the world. Okay. Let's keep reading. Verse number six. And I saw another angel flying in mid heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation, tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. If you recall back in chapter 8, we've seen that term mid-heaven before. Mid-heaven refers to a place wherever it is that all the world can see and hear what's being said, what's being declared. The last time we saw it, it was when the eagle flew and pronounced those three woes over those who dwell on the earth. Well, this isn't the same as that, but it's again that place where it's a word for everybody. So when the angel goes to the mid-heaven, all eyes, all ears are on what's about to be said. It says there's an eternal gospel to to be preached. Is that a new gospel? Is that a different gospel? Folks, it's the same gospel that's been preached throughout the ages, okay? It is the timeless truth of the word of God. It is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
So it's a gift, right? It's not about the works that we do to, to, to boast or brag or earn anything from God. It is a gift of his grace through faith that saves us. But I believe it's interesting here as we talk, as, as John talks about this eternal gospel, the thing that this angel says is fear God and give him glory. And I believe one of the reasons why it's stated that way, which doesn't change anything about the grace of God, salvation uh, by grace through faith. But I think that the reminder here is there is a lack of the fear of God among the dwellers on the earth at this point in time. I'm talking this point in time whenever Revelation 14 is. But you know what I'm also talking about? This point in time. There is an, an enormous lack of the fear of God on this planet. And, and even in the church in some ways, uh, this message of grace has become a license for sin. It's as if, hey, grace of God saves you. You can just keep sinning. Jesus will keep forgiving you. As if, what shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Rather than Paul's answer, may it never be, the answer in much of the church today is, you betcha, you go for it. Jesus understands you can't help yourself. That's a false gospel. That's one side of a two-sided coin. And so for the angel to be talking here about fearing God and giving him the glory... It addresses the lack of fear of God, but it also very clearly says this. This is your one and last and final chance to repent. God has up to this point poured out mercy to no end upon this world. And he will do that up until the very end. But this is talking about the end of time. Here is your one last final chance to repent of sin and turn to God, to give him glory. The hour of judgment has come. That's another one of those proleptic statements, okay? We won't see that come, literally come, till we get to chapter 20. And it's not going to be pretty. But in this compression of time and things being non-sequential, chapter 14 drives home this point. Judgment is coming. And then, verse 8, another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Throughout the Old Testament, Babylon was the enemy of Israel. Okay, But Babylon also is symbolic of the, the capital city, the, um, the headquarters of the final apostate anti-God, anti-Christ civilization and society. So I don't think it's talking about ancient Babylon, the literal city in Iraq. I think it's a, a type and a picture of the, the capital, the headquarters of everything in this world that is anti-Christ and anti-God's kingdom. When we get to chapter 17 and 18, you will see Babylon as the most anti-God system you could ever imagine. And those two chapters, 17 and 18, paint Babylon as anti-God in every way, shape, form, and fashion you could imagine. Babylon does not have a little problem. It is the personification and the epitome of anti-God thinking. From soup to nuts, I mean just across the board, we'll get there fairly soon. It talks here about 
Babylon being fallen and how she's made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. That's a, that's a statement talking about how this world system seduces people and intoxicates them with its power. The dwellers of the earth will be intoxicated and, and deceived and seduced and allured into this idolatry. This non-belief in God. Belief in uh, the Antichrist and the world system that's coming. Watch the contrasting language, though, here in the next verse. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink. Listen, he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Folks, I know this again is severe. And I, Kent, you said that chapter 14 wasn't, wasn't as severe. Chapter 13 was all about what's going to come against the saints. Chapter 14 is what the other side's going to get. Okay? Now, we don't take any, any joy in that. Talk about that a little more at the end. But this is a relief because this is not aimed at the church or at believers or at, at, at God's people. This chapter switches to talking about what's coming against those who refuse the eternal gospel. Those who refuse to repent and bow their knee and come to, to faith and obedience. I want to drive that point home, folks. The gospel is all about saved by grace through faith, but there's an element of the gospel that includes obedience. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But then look what he says. But he who does not believe? No. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, I am no way, shape, or form, hopefully ever, going to try and put myself in the position of judgment to know so how much obedience will get you in and how much is too much not to get in. I don't want to, that's not where I want to go. Okay. That's not my call to make. What I'm trying to say to you though, is it's very important for us as Christians to understand it's not just about what we say. It's also about how we live and we are called to faith and obedience. It's like right hand, left hand. And I don't care which one you make, which hand. But they're inseparable. They go together. And the world's going to be in short supply of that kind of obedience here at the end, except among God's people. All right. So let's, let's keep looking at this. There, there is going to be a drink poured out that is uh, the wrath of God mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Whew. So it's the wrath of God mixed with his anger. Now, we have to understand this. When I think of anger, I think of it in human terms, and it's usually reactionary, okay? I hit my thumb with a hammer. I get angry. I have something I expect to happen in life, and my plan, my expectations are unfulfilled. I get angry. God's emotion of anger is nothing like that whatsoever. God's anger is never reactionary. It's always a response born out of his perfect justice and holiness and righteousness, okay? It's in response to man's utter sinfulness, stubbornness, and rebellion. It is not cavalier. It is not whimsical. It is well thought out as the perfect response to what these people basically will ask for. It talks about, at the end there, this little portion, he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. 
We'll get to that more in chapter 20, but that's just kind of an odd concept. What do you mean tormented? These, these people who will spend eternity in hell, they'll be tormented in the presence of angels and of the Lamb. There's only one way I can see this as working. It, it, it cannot be that Jesus is going to spend a lot of time in their presence. Either that means Jesus is going to hell or somehow all these people are going to go to heaven. The, the great gulf, the great gap doesn't exist. Yes, it does. The only thing that makes sense to me is these people will have a glimpse of what heaven would have been like and what they have chosen to miss out on. And, and the way I, I think, but tormented forever and ever, what, what's that all about? I don't think it means that they're going to be in the presence of the angels and of the lamb forever and ever. But have you ever had an experience in your life that so bothered you that you could close your eyes right now, 20 years later and think about it? I, I do. I think it's more like that, that they will get a glimpse into what they've missed out on and where they're going to be. And it will torment them. The memory of what could have been will torment them, torment them forever. You see, cause they're going to have great awareness of what they missed out on. Because they would not respond to this eternal gospel that was once again presented to them. Smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That's that sense, I think, of the presence of the Lord won't be perpetual, but the regret and the memory will be. It will torment them forever what they've missed out on. But the last part of that verse, here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. It's a reminder don't quit. Remember what's coming to us and remember what's coming to them. That's the perseverance to remember whose side you're on and what the captain of the host is asking of us as king of kings and lord of lords. All right. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit. So they may rest from their labors for their deeds. Follow with them. Salvation is a faith issue. It's a faith in Jesus issue. It's a grace gift issue. Salvation's one thing, but your deeds will follow you folks and rewards. What you get when you stand before uh, the judgment seat of Christ different than the great white throne of judgment that unbelievers will stand before. How you live this life will matter. The rewards that you get in heaven will matter because your deeds will follow you. Not to decide if you're getting in heaven or not, but in terms of a reward-based issue. We'll, we'll explore that more in chapter 21 and 22. But here's the end of the chapter. I want to finish up quickly here. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man having a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. I believe that's Jesus. I believe he is the one like a son of man and he's got that gold crown. And another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat in the clouds swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. Well, I believe that's a picture of Jesus, that first picture, the one like a son of man. This is not the angel telling Jesus what to do. Okay, Jesus, now, now you go ahead and do that. Angels don't give Jesus orders. Have you figured that one out? Okay. Nobody gives him orders. Perhaps the father in concert together in the unity of their purpose is the one who 
is the orchestra conductor in some respects, but angels aren't telling Jesus what to do. This is more of the angel announcing the final fulfillment of the eternal purpose is now here. The harvest is fully ripe, is not a statement of universal salvation. It's exactly the opposite of that. God has waited as long as he could. He's poured out as much mercy and patience as is absolutely possible. And now it's time. Time for the harvest. Now, a couple theories on this harvest deal, okay? Some scholars think that uh, these three harvests talked about here are all one event. I don't think that's the case. I think it's talking about three separate events. The first one being a harvest of souls, those who will be a part of the kingdom of God in heaven. And the second and third ones being a harvest of judgment and wrath. Uh, I tend towards that second one because when you read the story Jesus told in Matthew 13 about the angels coming, and it's not him so much as the angels coming to do that reaping, you see it seems to be in stages, okay? Not just one grand and glorious event. Okay, let's keep reading. Another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out of the altar. I think that's a reference. Remember back in chapter number six, where around the altar of God, there were those martyrs who cried out, how long, O Lord, how long until you avenge us and what's been done to us? I think this angel says, now, now is the time I will take vengeance on your behalf against the dwellers of the earth. And so we read here that he calls out with a loud voice, the one with the sharp sickle saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. It moves from be patient. The time is coming to now is the time. Gathering the clusters from the vines of the earth is not talking about the rapture of Christians. It's the dwellers of the earth who will now come under the fierce wrath and anger of God. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Throughout the Old Testament, a wine press is a picture of God's wrath. And it's not grapes that are being squeezed. It's people and it's not about wine. It's about blood. It's kind of gory. It's, it's kind of awful. But that's what's going on here. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Chapter 16, I'm just going to look at one verse there very quickly, speaks of this great battle that's coming in the day of the Lord when Jesus comes again. That will take place between the dragon and the beasts and all the kingdoms of the earth uh, rallied against God. And it says, and they gathered, that's the evil side, gathered them together to a place which in Hebrew is called Har Megadon. That means the mountain of Megiddo, mountain of Megiddo, We know that as Armageddon. That's where that word comes from, okay? It is Mount Megiddo or the valley of Armageddon. You want a little preview of coming attractions? Well, if you say no, you're going to get it anyhow. So, yes, Pastor, I'd love that. There's a picture. Um, When I was in Israel back in 1979, I got to stand in the valley of Armageddon. It's also known as the Jezreel Valley. 
It's a valley that runs along kind of the west coast of Israel. It's over towards the Mediterranean Sea. It's a conversion point. It's a, it's a travel route. Uh, all the enemies from the north, Russia, Turkey, Syria, all the enemies from the south, Egypt, the Sudan, uh, this is where they will converge, okay? This valley is about 380 square kilometers or 12 miles by 12 miles just in this valley. The scripture says that this is going to run for 200 miles. But just in this valley, it would be like standing right here and going to the north end of Fort Collins and then going up into the foothills. It says the blood will be four or five feet deep. How could this possibly be? There's going to be a lot of enemies of God in that last day. And it may look like, oh man, or not, not that we'll be here, but whoever's here, oh my, are we outnumbered? This is not good. You know what? God, with one other person on his side, wins that battle. I don't care how many of them there are. But this is going to be fierce and it's going to be nasty. And when we get a little further into the story in chapter 19, we will see that there will be massive carnage taking place on the earth. I don't take this as a figurative thing. I think it could very well, and I believe it is, a literal thing. It's going to be a fierce and awful battle. So, it's a catastrophic battle, all right? What do we do until that day comes? We sit and twiddle our thumbs. Do we sit and continue to root for the good guys? Well, we do a little of that. But, you know, what I want to leave you with today is this. We started this chapter and we talked about the martyrs. And we talked about their outcome. And we end the chapter talking about some of the outcome of the wicked. But until that day comes, when the eternal gospel is preached for the last time, If you're on the good guy's side, you don't sit and twiddle your thumbs. You don't sit and wait till God takes revenge on his enemies and our enemies. I believe to be in line with with the spirit of Christ is to say that we continue to pray for the enemies of God. Pray for the enemies of God. Yeah, remember like Ephesians said, you used to be one. We were, we're not anymore. I believe the call of God on all of our lives these days. Jesus said, I want my house to be called a house of prayer for all nations. Not just a house of prayer for your own personal needs, although that's important. And at the end of the service, if you have personal needs, we'll be happy to pray for you. But I want to challenge you with this. Ask God to remind you sometime this week, and maybe as an ongoing thing to do, to pray for the nations. Every tongue, every tribe, Every people. But they're enemies. Yeah, so are we. And until the eternal gospel is preached for the last time, one of our marching orders from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is to pray for the salvation of those who are lost. Start with your neighbors, start with your friends, start with your family, but expand it out to the nations. God's not willing that any should perish. Now, some will by their own choice. But until Jesus comes again, I think one of, our, one of our key missions is to pray. Okay? So I want to challenge you with that this week and ask God to open our hearts to do that even in the future. So let me pray for you and we'll, we'll be done today. Father, um, thank you for uh, this glimpse back into heaven. I, I just love how in your infinite wisdom, this book 
ebbs and flows. And we look at something on earth and we see how terrible it is. But then we're taken back up to the perspective from heaven. And, and we see that uh, martyrdom's not the end. You have a very special place and plan in your heart for those who will be martyred. And Lord, ultimately, eventually, you will judge the dwellers of this earth in perfect righteousness, holiness, and justice. But Lord, until that day, we're still on a mission to pray for the lost and to send missionaries and to try and evangelize this world by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we can sit in a place where we look at this book and we look at the world and think, oh, it's just getting worse and worse all the time. Black is just getting blacker. Evil's just getting more evil. Or we can choose to remember your promise that in the last days, you're going to pour out your spirit on all flesh. And Lord, you're, you're about some good things, even in the midst of all the evil and nasty that's going on. And we want to be a people who focus on that, who believe you for good, and who see we still have marching orders until you come again. So Lord, find us faithful. Help us be faithful by your grace. Encourage your church today, Lord, with the, the certainty of your plan unfolding in its perfect timing, according to your perfect wisdom, mercy, and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So, bless you. Have a great week. If you need prayer, we've got some folks that will be up here in just a second. You come and engage with them, and they'll be happy to pray with you and for you. Have a great week. God bless you.